Well, good morning. It's always good to be with you. Uh, this morning is a, is a different kind of Sunday morning for those of us who, uh, who have children who just got through kindergarten because this sermon is the first sermon that your children are going to have to suffer through all the way through. We've been talking about this at our house this week because Reese is sitting through her first full-length sermon, and she assured me yesterday that it was going to be okay. She wasn't going to get bored because it was me speaking. And I wanted to say to her, honey, you're so sweet and you're so wrong. (laughs) It's hard to sit through a whole sermon. And not just when you've just gotten through kindergarten. It can be hard to sit through a whole sermon. And so if I'm speaking a little faster today or if you feel like the the sermon is overall shorter, you'll know why. No promises, but if it happens, (laughs) you'll know why. So as David Wallace mentioned, we are continuing in our series, Living a Better Story. We we live according to stories, and we all make decisions about the story we're going to live in, the story of our life, what, what really is going to be the defining aspects of who we're trying to be. And many of us struggle to choose for Scripture to continue to be the shaping story of everything about us. We are tempted to live life stories that are shaped by a sense of contest, Right, that we're, we're struggling against other people, whether that's in our family or in our work or in other places of our lives, and we want to win. Maybe our lives are, are primarily about us doing what we want to do whenever we want to do it. Maybe our lives are about happiness and, and chasing after it at all costs. Maybe our lives are about all kinds of different things. And yet we're the church, we're the people who have decided beforehand that we want our lives to be shaped by God's word, that we want our lives shaped by God's story. And in order for that to happen, we have to know that story. We can't just read it, we can't just study it, we can't just know about it, but we have to know that story by heart. And so this series has been an attempt for us to be able to learn The overarching story of Scripture, and and David mentioned, we've been using this story chart. We've been using a kind of map uh, that helps us understand where we are. And so I'm going to ask if we could bring that up now. We've already, in this series, we've gone through the first four chapters. The first one we called creation. The second one we called conflict. The third one, covenant. Last week we talked about Christ. And this week we are talking about this fifth major chapter of the big story that that Scripture tells us. We're calling it church. All of these are one-word titles. All of them start with the letter C. All of this is an attempt for us to be able to hold this overarching narrative in our hearts and mind all at the same time. And one of the things we find is that God never gives up on his hope for us. God never gives up on his ideal. It's at the very uh, at the very outset we find God saying that this world we're in is supposed to be a life that is good. That all of creation is good, that you and I are good, and we're supposed to be treating one another that way, seeing one another that way, seeing all of creation that way. And yet we find that people make decisions time and again that, that put that good at great risk, that, that possibly make decisions 
that could ruin just about everything. And yet every time people make those kinds of of decisions that are selfish and self-focused, but everything at risk, we find God never giving up. God always finding a way to to step in and interact. And just last week, we, we talked about the fact that God's willing to not only interact with us, but to intercede, to intervene, to step into the story himself through the life of his son. Jesus comes and restores for us the sense of God's ideal. Right, That jagged line that David referenced, that's, that's our experience of the kind of life God wants for us. And there's a couple of fleeting moments where humans get to have that experience. But for the most part, it's up and down and it's sideways. It's all over the place. But last week, we got to to look at the chapter of that story where for 33 years everybody gets to see God's ideal in living, breathing color. And it changes everything because once the world witnesses what's possible, it can't forget it. I can't forget it. You can't forget it. And even though we struggle to live that ideal, we know what it looks like and we know that it truly is Good, that original goodness that God talks about from the very beginning, we know that it's possible. And now we're into this part of the story where after Jesus lives that ideal in front of us out, he says, live it in my place. And so we're in this chapter that we're calling church, and you'll find that this jagged line is gradually moving closer and closer to God's ideal Now, that's not the way the story has to go. It's the way the story wants to go. It's it's the way the rest of the New Testament talks about the kind of community we're supposed to be. But Scripture never forces its way on us. God doesn't force his way on us. It's always invitation. It's always a choice we have to make. It's always a decision that's left up to us. And so the question we've got to wrestle with this morning is... If scripture is saying that the church should be the community where we are gradually learning more and more how to live into God's ideal, the ideal that we focus our hearts on week after week in the story of Jesus, is that really who we're becoming? Is that really the kind of community we are transforming into? Week after week, year after year, or are we finding that we're stuck Are we finding that we're regressing? Is this story coming true in our experience or not? And if it were to come true in our experience, what would it look like? In 1966, in the spring, there was a guy named Elias Shakur. Got a picture of him here. In the 1966... He was assigned to, to be a priest, a Palestinian priest, in a, in a small village called Ibelin in the middle of Israel. And as soon as he gets to this small village, he finds out that it is, it's torn apart by all kinds of different disagreements and long-standing grudges and misunderstandings. And, and they just cannot, as a community, as a village, they can't figure out how to get along. 
And there's all kinds of different reasons for it. Every time Elias talks to a different person who lives in this village, they have a different reason for why they can't be good to someone else's family or to someone else that they do business with or to someone else that they go to church with. And in fact, the challenging thing for Elias is just about everybody in this village goes to church. And when they're at church, they, they pretend to get along. But as soon as they leave that building, it goes back to normal. And week after week, this young priest is struggling with, how is it that they can talk like this on Sundays about Jesus and love and grace, and then they go out the door and they're, they're hateful towards one another. They attack each other. They undermine one another. They try to cheat one another in deals and in conversations. And, and how can he somehow figure out a way co- to connect their faith and their, their belief in Jesus and that Jesus' way of life is the best way of life? How can he connect that outside of Sunday morning, to all of their other interactions and conversations and decisions. And he doesn't know what to do, and and it's getting worse and worse for him because he feels like they're, they're just not letting the transforming power of the gospel do its work in their lives. And so he looks out on the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, And because just about everybody in the village goes to church, and because it's getting closer and closer to Easter, he looks out at this little church building, and it is standing room only. And they get to the place in the service where they're taking communion, and it's just too much for him. Because here they are, pretending that they share something in common, and they're they're willing to come to this place together to, to receive the grace of Jesus, but they're not willing to extend that grace to one another And he decides he's got to do something drastic. They don't just come to the table as as strangers. They come as enemies. And, And Elias is convinced that the only way for them to really be church, to really be the community they're supposed to be, is for them to come not as strangers or enemies, but as brothers and sisters. And he knows it's not going to be easy, but he decides that this Sunday is going to be the, the day that he does something. The day that he says something. Now we're going to come back to this story, the rest of the story, right at the end of the sermon. But what would you do if you were in his position? If you belonged to a church, if you didn't just belong to that church, but you felt like you were called to lead that church, that community, you know that they they have all kinds of divisions and disagreements and grudges and problems between them, They don't bring any of that stuff up at church. They pretend everything's going okay, and you've had enough. What do you do in that moment? How do you help people who need grace and need to show grace actually live the way they need to live, but they don't want to live? How do you do it? What do you say? We've all been in that place where we struggle to know how to to help somebody make the decision to show grace and mercy and forgiveness to somebody else. We know how hard it is to have those conversations with somebody when they don't want to forgive, when they don't want to show grace, when they don't want to extend mercy. And we know that not just for other people, we know that for ourselves because we've all been in a place and a moment in an experience where somebody has hurt us, they've betrayed us, and we don't want to forgive them. I mean, all of us remember the first moment we realized That there were people in this world who were willing to hurt us to get what they want. Lauren and I have two daughters, Riley and Reese. And we love them deeply. 
This is in hopes that it'll keep Reese's attention if there's a picture of herself on the, on the screen. You with me, Reese? Okay. From the beginning of their lives, Lauren and I have not done this perfectly at all, but we have tried. It's not like we had a conversation about it or anything. We have tried to shield them and protect them. We have celebrated everything they've ever done that's been challenging for them, whether it's challenging for anybody else or not. We've tried to speak words of encouragement to them, no matter what's going on. We have tried to to treat them in ways that help them understand that they are loved beyond reason. This is what the vast majority of parents try to do. None of us... None of us are able to do it perfectly, but we all try to help our children start out in this way. Now, in the back of our minds, I think we're always worried, at least I am, that in celebrating the little things and in trying to be understanding no matter what, trying to be patient no matter what, and trying to treat them like they they are the valuable, priceless people that they are, there's always a part of me that's a little worried that they're going to expect everyone else in the world to always treat them the way that we try to treat them. And that that we're maybe running the risk of them developing too much self-confidence, too much self-assurance, right? That we might enjoy being with them, but you might not. I think we all wrestle with trying to balance Raising children in a world like ours, trying to help them understand their love no matter what, and we do this running the risk that we may, we may cause them to, to have a self-confidence and a self-assurance that, that we may have to deal with later. We run that risk because we know. We know That regardless of how we treat our children, there are plenty of people in this world who will chew them up and spit them out. Who won't be patient or understanding or kind. But will instead be selfish and aggressive and will hurt them. We, We treat our children this way because... We want to be a soft place to fall in a world that is overly filled with hard hearts and hard cases. We know what's coming. Even when our children don't know what's coming. Because we all understand from our own lives and our own experience that that there will be a first time for Riley and Reese where somebody will look them in the face and hurt them. Some jealous friend will say something about them that isn't true. Or maybe somebody they trust really deeply will share something about them that's embarrassing. Or someone will simply do everything in their power to get them out of their way because they think that that Riley or Reese is the reason they're not happy or the reason they don't have what they want. The day is coming when my little girls are going to be attacked by somebody else and they're going to be heartbroken in that moment. And when they're heartbroken, they're going to have a choice to make. Do they forgive or do they refuse to forgive? Do they show mercy or do they try to figure out a way to get even? Do they try to understand 
or do they try to just attack? And I, I am convinced that the only way that Riley or Reese, in that moment, when they're heartbroken and hurting, and they've got a choice to make, the only way they would choose grace is if they have seen grace happen in real life. Open your Bibles up to the letter of Colossians, chapter 3. Starting in verse 12. These are Paul's words to us about what it means to be the church. Therefore is God's choice. I love that, right? You're God's choice. Holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other as the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, the peace of Christ must control your hearts. A peace into which you were called in one body. And be thankful people. Now I, I, want, I want you to look at this list of attributes, of qualities that Paul uses to describe the kind of community we should be if we're actually living each week, each day, each hour, each decision closer and closer into God's ideal for us and the watching world. These are not simple words that he lists. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he rattles them off quickly. And the only place where Paul really starts to slow down in this list of of values, of practices, of of a posture of life, the only place he starts to slow down where he, he does more than list the word is the idea of forgiveness. That's that's the place where Paul knows he has to slow down for a moment in the list and he has to unpack what he's talking about because he knows as difficult as all of those other words are, perhaps the most difficult value to live out, the most difficult decision to make over and over and over again, the, the hardest choice to make is forgiveness. And then he doesn't just talk about it. He doesn't just say, well, here's one way you might think about forgiving each other. He says, here's the spirit in which and by which you need to forgive one another. Here's why you do this. Here's how you do this. You forgive, not in any any possible way. You forgive in a very specific way. You forgive in the way of Jesus. You forgive as Jesus forgave you. And then he says... This is what it's going to take for you to actually be one body. This is what it's going to take for you to overcome your your disagreements and your divisions and your grudges and all of the, the struggles and the problems you have in your community of being good and gentle and patient, all those other things. Those things can't be present. Those good things can't really live and breathe in a community unless it is a community that is defined by and shaped by forgiveness. I'm not saying anything that that you don't already know. In fact, I think we, 
We know this all too well. And one thing we know about the forgiveness that Paul's talking about here, the, the forgiveness that is Christ's forgiveness that we not only re- receive but we're also trying to share, what makes that difficult is that there's nothing about it that's natural. There's nothing about it that comes easy. I mean, you're, you're not born with a sense of this kind of forgiveness. You have to live into it. Let me tell you what you're born with. You're born with a deep sense of fairness. And if things aren't fair, you're willing to fight over it. I mean, what happens if you have two kids and one toy? What happens if you have two kids or three kids or four kids and you give one kid more of something, let's say candy, than the other kids? What immediately starts to happen in that group of kids? It's not fair. It's not right. That's what the civilized kid will do. The other kid will just hit the other kid and take the candy. Right? We, have, we are born with an innate sense of everybody should get enough. Everybody should be treated fairly. And if that doesn't happen, there's this immediate response in us to say, look, I'll take what I need to take if you won't freely give it to me, or I'll get even with you if you hurt me. And what we find in our lives is it's not just the kids that have this struggle. We all do. We all wrestle with it, and we all want to get even. And if you hurt me, my immediate response is to find a civilized way to hurt you back. I'm tempted immediately to develop a strategy to get even. And if I can appeal to some other power that has authority over both of us, and they can force the fairness to happen, then I'm going to go to that authority. If I can do it myself, I'll figure out a way to do it myself. If it's not fair, or if you hurt me, I'm going to do something for me to feel like, okay, at least, at least there's some sense of justice in the world. And then Jesus comes along. And he says, in a world where people are hurting one another's hearts, And they're hurting one another's lives. The only real way to break the cycle of violence and conflict is for somebody who's been hurt to refuse to hurt back. That's the only way forward. Now we see Jesus talk that way. We, We see Jesus live that way. We see Jesus die that way. And we see Jesus rise from the dead Because God honors that way of life, and yet we still struggle with believing that it's the way of life that we can embrace, that it's the story we can live out. We love the fact Jesus lived it out, but we struggle with wrestling with whether or not we're going to live it out. And Paul says, if we're going to have a shot at helping the watching world fall back in love with what's possible, with God's ideal for human life. It's going to hinge on whether or not we're going to be a community that's given to forgiveness. 
Now, we can't force this to happen in our church. We have to choose for this to happen in our church. I can't make this happen in your life. You have to decide for this to happen in your life. And one of the things we wrestle with is we would rather hear sermons on forgiveness and go to Bible classes on forgiveness and do word studies on forgiveness than actually show forgiveness. In in his book, Embodying, Forgiveness. L. Gregory Jones talks about for Christian people, there are two primary temptations when it comes to wrestling with whether or not we're actually going to be people who forgive. The first temptation is therapeutic forgiveness. This is where I forgive you for me. I forgive you because I don't want to be trapped in a prison of of grudge holding and all the regrets that come along with that. And so I'm not really forgiving you because I care about you or because I want any kind of future with you. I am forgiving you for me. This is the type of forgiveness that gets most discussed in our world. Have you heard this type of forgiveness talked about? This is... A forgiveness that is primarily motivated by what I'm going to get out of it. Now that is a form of forgiveness, but it is not a Christian form of forgiveness. Now I want to say something quickly. Doesn't it make sense that when we're obedient to do what we're asked to do, like forgive as the Lord forgave you, that there would be a blessing that comes along with the obedience? Right, that, that's what the world has tapped into here with therapeutic forgiveness. They figured out that a side effect of forgiveness is that you are actually a happier, healthier person when you're able to forgive. But if you go into forgiveness with that being your only motivation, what you're going to find is you don't care that much about being happy or healthy. You may think you do, And it may work once or twice, but eventually you're going to come to a place where you weigh the difficulty of forgiving to get something out of it or just holding a grudge, and you're likely to, at some point, make the decision to just keep holding a grudge. Because as bitter as it can make you and as distracted as it can make you, there's something about holding a grudge that can actually make you feel alive. You see that person and you're pulse starts to pick up and you start to think about what you'd like to do to them if you weren't a Christian and all those, those things start to happen and it starts to, to make you feel like you're standing for something, like you're standing against something. It starts to feel empowering. Look, when you, when you make a decision of how you want to spend your life earning money, you need to decide that you want to do something that gives you joy. You want to do something that you feel like you were born to do, right? And a side effect of of doing that is that someone will pay you to do that. But if you make a choice of a job just because of how much it pays, at some point you're going to find out that it wasn't worth it. It's the same way with therapeutic forgiveness. There's a side effect of being somebody who forgives, and it is that you're a healthier, happier person. But if that's the only reason you do it, you won't always do it. 
The other aspect, the, the barrier that Jones talks about is just simply inauthentic forgiveness, which is you look at everybody else who says they're forgiving people, and you don't have to look at them very long before you figure out there's at least someone in their life they're struggling to forgive or they're just outright not forgiving, and you decide that what forgiveness really is is just words. That people just say it to one another, but they don't really know how to, how to actually live it out. So they say, oh, there's, don't worry about it. There's, there's nothing to forgive. But then you notice that they, they completely avoid one another and that if they get stuck in the same room at the same time on accident, that they're both really uncomfortable. And you especially find this happening in families where there's a sense that, well, we're going to be together regardless, uh, so we don't really have to work anything out. And then you have these, these really frustratingly difficult moments and situations that are caused by people who claim that they have forgiven somebody that they really haven't forgiven at all. The other temptation that's attached to this inauthentic forgiveness is you can't really go to church and refuse on the surface to forgive somebody else. Someone's going to call you on that. So what it's easier to do is to talk like you're willing when you're not actually willing. Now my guess is you have seen or you have experienced both of these temptations when it comes to actually living out forgiveness in your life and the lives of the people you care about. And if I only forgive for me, then I'm not forgiving the way Jesus forgives because Jesus doesn't only forgive for himself. In fact, I'm not sure that Jesus forgives for himself. He forgives for the sake of the world. He forgives in order to show us that it's possible for, to, to, to forgive. It's about God's hope for the world. It's about God's relationship with the world going forward. Jesus doesn't forgive in order to manipulate. Jesus doesn't forgive in order to somehow figure out how to, how to get even. Jesus doesn't forgive so he can sleep better at night. Jesus forgives because it's what God has asked him to do. And Jesus doesn't just say, well, I forgive you. Jesus actually lives those words out. And you and I have to figure out how to balance this, this reality of we live in a world, and if we're honest, brutally honest, we live in a church where we have been hurt and we are going to hurt one another. Not, not necessarily because we want to. There may be times, times when we really actually do want to hurt somebody else's heart. But for the, for the most part, I find that it's on accident. It's unintentional. It, it just happens. And then we have to ask the question, are we serious enough about being Christ-like people who forgive the way Christ forgives? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to push past these two temptations to be the kinds of people Jesus believes we can be? I want you to look at this statement. Christian forgiveness is always just as much about healing the person I'm forgiving as it is about finding my own healing. It's just as much about helping that person who has hurt me become a different kind of person 
who not only won't hurt me that way again, but I'm hopeful won't hurt anybody else that way again. See, I think one of the temptations we have with forgiveness in that inauthentic forgiveness is to, to act like because we talked about it and we've moved on that it's over, but true forgiveness is a journey. It's a series of decisions. It's not just one. And if it's as much about the other person as it is about me, then I would want to stay enough in that person's life to help them learn how to be different than the person they were when they hurt me. Now, they may not be willing to stay around for that. They, they may decide, I, I don't want that kind of help. I don't want that kind of support. I don't really want you having that role in my life. Forgiveness is not pretending that nothing painful happened. It's recognizing that something painful happened and then trying to figure out together how for transformation can, can take place, not just in our relationship, but, but in both of us. Forgiving the way Jesus forgives has to be about healing, not just for some of us, but for all of us. Not just for those of us who've been hurt, but for those of us who have caused the hurt in the first place. How does that kind of healing grace play out? What what does it mean? What does it look like? I think that's the real question here. Because while, while you and I are not born with the tendency to forgive the way Jesus forgives, we can learn to forgive that way. We can be trained in this art of forgiving the way Jesus forgives. Now, the way you're trained in, in an art is not through lecture, and it's not through just education. The way you're trained in an art is through apprenticeship. It's through being with somebody who's an artist, who knows what they're doing, who knows the essence of what they're doing, and you get to see them create art. The, the, the blessing that we have of being a community that's shaped by and defined by forgiveness is I get to share life with you enough to witness the moments when you manage to forgive the way Jesus forgives. I get to see it, and then I get to figure out how I'm going to live that same grace and mercy and forgiveness out of my own life. I'm not having to be theoretical about it. I'm not, I'm not having to, to figure it out all on my own. You have faced this in your own life. It doesn't matter when a preacher talks about forgiveness in a sermon or in a Bible class. The reality is forgiveness is always taking different shapes in our lives. That mercy and grace come in all kinds of different situations and they have to look different. And there's no possible way for a single class or a single book or a single conversation to spell out all the different ways that grace and mercy and forgiveness are going to look in your life. But in a community of this size and this scope with this many people in a room together, surely if we shared our lives together and our stories together we would find out that whatever it is we're facing, whatever kind of situation where we're being asked to forgive the way Jesus forgives, and we're not sure we want to, and even if we want to, we're not sure exactly how it's going to look, there's somebody else in this room who's been in that same exact situation before, and they showed grace. They managed to start the journey of forgiveness. And if we would share that collective wisdom together, we would train one another in the art of what mercy and grace looks like in this situation and in that situation and in this moment and in this conversation and in this disagreement and in this problem. I promise you, if you have a parent that you don't know how to talk to, a parent you haven't spoken to 
for 10 years, there's somebody else in this room that had a parent that they didn't speak to for forever, and then one day they picked up the phone and they called them and they reconciled. And if you're in that place, you need to find that person and you need to share your stories. I'm telling you, if you're here today and you're not sure if, if it's, if it's going to be possible for you to hold on to your marriage because of something that's gone on between you and your spouse, there's another couple in this room that's been in that same place before and they found a way to choose mercy and grace between them. And we've got to get together and share our stories. If you're a parent in this room and you've, you've got a child that's getting older and older and making a series of, of, of bad of bad decisions and mistakes and you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say and, and you're, you're tempted to either ignore it or you're tempted to walk away, I promise you there is somebody in this room, there's a parent in this room that's been in that place and you need to get together and you need to share your stories. We need to get together and share our stories and I'm afraid that in church in, in 2017, we, we don't share our lives enough. We don't share our stories enough. We don't know each other well enough to actually be blessed by the kind of shared wisdom that's in this room by the grace and the mercy of God. We aren't born knowing exactly how to show mercy and grace in any and every situation, but we have been born again into this family, into this community, and I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's somebody here you could follow in their footsteps because they followed in Jesus' footsteps. I want us to be a church that finds a way to share those experiences, to share those stories and to tell each other, you can do this. And this is what it looks like. And the watching world will learn that there really is a different way to live in relationships where brokenness and betrayal are always a part of the equation and yet we find a way to choose a future together. Forgiveness never means that we can somehow erase the past. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we can somehow engineer the same exact kind of future we would have had if nothing painful had ever happened. No, no, no. It's a brand new future. And it's different. It's redeemed. And it is the future God says is possible if we will choose it. So back to our priest in 1966. He looks out at his church and he decides he's had enough of paying lip service to being a community of forgiveness. And they go out the door and they have grudges and disagreements and misunderstanding. And every time I read this story, I just can't believe that Elias makes this choice. It's this small church building and there's only two doors that you can get out of. And without explaining himself, before the sermon, he goes back to those two doors and he locks them in full view of everybody. And he comes back and he says, I've had enough. Now I've locked the doors. And you can either kill one another in your hatred, and I'll do your funerals today. Or you can choose the path of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I will know that today Jesus has become your Lord, and I've become your pastor and your priest. 
but the choice is yours. And I have found the one person who can help you with this choice. It's Jesus, and he's here in the room with us. I'm not unlocking the doors unless we're all dead or unless we've all forgiven one another. And he goes back to the front and sits down. And according to his account, for 10 minutes, nobody does anything. For 10 minutes. No, do you know how long 10 minutes is in a church service with nobody doing anything? And you have to wonder if somebody thinks, okay, which, which side of the choice is my neighbor going to pick? And finally, the oldest man in the community, a village leader, stands up and gets up in front of the church and says, I forgive everybody in this room who has hurt me, and I'm asking you to forgive me, and I'm begging for Jesus to forgive me all my sins. Now, there's like 32 exits in our building, so it would take us a long time to lock ourselves in here, and I'm pretty sure the fire marshal wouldn't let us. But I'm pretty sure that if that happened in this place, none of us would ever forget it. It's possible. It's possible for us to be the community that decides that even though we hurt each other and we betray each other and and all of us at some place or another have had our hearts broken and our souls crushed by people, and not just any people, but often by people of faith, that what God hopes for us really can come true and that we can choose not just to forgive, but to forgive the way Jesus forgives, that our lives could tell this part of the story, that the words that Jesus says while he's dying on the cross to save us from our sins, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That needs to be the story that we strive to live out together. And I promise you, if we would actually do it, everyone in this world would be saved. And it wouldn't be because we figured something out on our own. It'd be because we simply figured out how to trust and obey the one who saves us over and over and over again. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, we're going to have a couple of shepherding couples just outside of these double doors that are there to talk with you, to pray with you, to be there for you. So if you came this morning with any concern at all, that you'd like to talk over with a Christian couple and pray about, go to them as together.